0: Thank you. From Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation, this is the podcast WikiReadia, wherein we read from start to finish the Wikipedia entries that we find interesting. Today's topic is the Berlin Blockade and the Berlin Airlift. The original Wikipedia page lives at www.wikipedia.org wiki slash Berlin underscore blockade. And we're tapping into this text under the Creative Commons license, which permits adaptation and retransmission of the original work provided attribution is made. Wikiredia is similarly distributed under the same Creative Commons license. This is the Berlin Blockade, Wikiredia, Episode 6, date of production, July 18th, 2020. Let's get started. Berlin Blockade. The Berlin Blockade... June 24, 1948 to May 12, 1949, was one of the first major international crises of the Cold War. During the multinational occupation of post-World War II Germany, the Soviet Union blocked the Western Allies' railway, road, and canal access to the sectors of Berlin under Western control. The Soviets offered to drop the blockade if the Western Allies withdrew the newly introduced Deutschmark from West Berlin. The Western Allies organized the Berlin Airlift to carry supplies to the people of West Berlin, a difficult feat given the size of the city's population. The Americans and the British then began a joint operation in support of the entire city. uh, Air crews from the American, British, French, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand and South African air forces flew more than 200,000 sorties in one year, providing to the West Berliners necessities such as fuel and food, with the original plan being to lift almost 3,500 tons of supplies every day. By the spring of 1949, that number was often met twofold, with the peak daily delivery totaling nearly 13,000 tons. By this time, the airlift was clearly succeeding, delivering more cargo than had previously been transported into the city by rail. The Soviets did not disrupt the airlift for fear that this might lead to open conflict, even though they far outnumbered the Allies in Germany and especially in Berlin. On May 12, 1949, the USSR lifted the blockade of West Berlin, although for a time the Americans and British continued to supply the city by air anyway because they were worried that the Soviets were simply going to resume the blockade and were only trying to disrupt Western supply lines. The Berlin airlift officially ended on September 30, 1949. After 15 months, the U.S. Air Force had delivered 1.7 million tons and the Royal Air Force had delivered 541,000 tons, For a total of 2.3 million tons of cargo, nearly two-thirds of which was coal, on 278,000 flights to Berlin. The C-47s and C-54s together flew over 92 million miles in the process, almost the distance from Earth to the sun. At the height of the airlift, one plane reached West Berlin every 30 seconds. Seventeen American and eight British aircraft crashed during the operation. A total of 101 fatalities were recorded as as a result of the operation, including 40 Britons and 31 Americans, mostly due to non-flying accidents. The Berlin blockade served to highlight the competing ideological and economic visions for post-war Europe and played a major role in drawing West Germany into NATO into the NATO orbit several years later in 1955. Berlin Blockade, post-war division of Germany. From July 17th to August 2nd, 1945, the victorious Allies reached the Potsdam Agreement on the fate of post-war Europe, calling for the division of defeated Germany into four temporary occupation zones. These zones were located roughly around the then-current locations of the Allied of the Allied armies. Also divided into occupation zones was the city of Berlin itself, which was located 100 miles inside Soviet-controlled eastern Germany. The United States, United Kingdom, and France controlled western portions of the city, while Soviet troops controlled the eastern sector. In the eastern zone, the Soviet authorities forcibly unified the Communist Party of Germany and Social Democratic Party in the Socialist Unity Party, claiming at the time that it would not have a Marxist, Leninist, or Soviet orientation. The SED leaders then called for the, quote, establishment of an anti-fascist democratic regime, a parliamentary democratic republic, while the Soviet military administration suppressed all other political activities. Factories, equipment, technicians, managers, and skilled personnel were removed to the Soviet Union. In a June 1945 meeting, Stalin informed German communist leaders that he expected to slowly undermine the British position within their occupation zone and that the United States would then withdraw within a year or two, and then nothing would then stand in the way of a united Germany under communist control within the Soviet orbit. Stalin and other leaders told visiting Bulgarian and Yugoslavian delegations in early 1946 that Germany must be both Soviet and communist. A further factor contributing to the blockade was that there had never been a formal agreement guaranteeing rail and and road access to Berlin through the Soviet zone. At the end of the war, Western leaders had relied on Soviet goodwill to provide them with access. At that time, the Western Allies assumed that the Soviets' refusal to grant any cargo access other than one rail line, limited to 10 trains a day, was temporary. But the Soviets refused expansion to the various additional routes that were later proposed. The Soviets also granted only three air corridors for, British to, uh, for for access to Berlin from Hamburg, Buckenburg, and Frankfurt. In 1946, the Soviets stopped delivering agricultural goods from their zone in eastern Germany, and the American commander, Louis, uh, uh, Lucius D. Clay, responded by stopping shipments of dismantled industries from western Germany to the Soviet Union. In response, the Soviets started a public relations campaign against American policy and began to obstruct the the administrative work of all four zones of occupation. Until the blockade began in 1948, the Truman administration had not decided whether American forces should remain in West Berlin after the establishment of a West German government planned for 1949. Berlin quickly became the focal point of both U.S. and Soviet efforts to realign Europe to their respective visions. As Soviet foreign manager Vyshlev Molotov noted, what happens to Berlin happens to Germany, what happens to Germany happens to Europe. Berlin had suffered enormous damage. Its pre-war population of 4.3 million people was reduced to 2.8 million. After harsh treatment, forced immigration, political repression and the particularly hard winter of 1945 and 1946, Germans in the Soviet-controlled zone were hostile to Soviet endeavors. Local elections in 1946 resulted in a massive anti-communist protest vote, especially in the Soviet sector of Berlin. Berlin's citizens overwhelmingly elected non-communist members to its city government. Berlin blockade, political division. The U.S. had secretly decided that a unified and neutral Germany was undesirable, with Ambassador Smith telling General Eisenhower that in spite of our announced position, we really do not want nor intend to accept a German unification on any terms that the Russians might agree to, even though they seem to meet most of our requirements. American planners had previously decided during the war that it would need a strong allied Germany to assist in the rebuilding of the Western European economy. To coordinate the economies of the British and United States occupation zones, these were combined on January 1st, 1947, into what was referred to as the bi After March 1946, the British Zonal Advisory Board was established with representatives of the states, the central offices, political parties, trade unions, and consumer organizations. As indicated by its name, the Zonal Advisory Board had no legislative power, but was merely advisory. The Control Commission for Germany— British element made all decisions with its legislative power. In reaction to the Soviet and British advances in October 1945, the Office of Military Government, United States, the OMGUS, that's right, encouraged the states in the U.S. zone to form a coordinating body, the so called Council of States, with the power to legislate for the entire U.S. zone. It created its own central uh, bodies, headed by a secretariat, seated in Stuttgart. When the British and Soviet central administrations were allied institutions, these U.S. zone committees were not OMGUS subdivisions, but instead were autonomous bodies of German self-rule under OMGUS supervision. Representatives of these three governments met twice in London in the first half of 1948 to discuss the future of Germany, going ahead despite Soviet threats to ignore any resulting decisions. Eventually, the London Agreement on German External debts, also known as the London Debt Agreement, was concluded. Under the Debt Agreement of 1953, the repayable amount was reduced by 50% to about 15 billion marks and stretched out over 30 years, and compared to the fast-growing German economy, was of minor impact. In response to the announcement, of the first of these meetings, in late January 1948, the Soviets began stopping British and American trains to Berlin to check passenger identities. As outlined in an announcement on March 7, 1948, All of the governments present approved the extension of the Marshall Plan to Germany, finalized the economic merger of Western occupation zones in in Germany, and agreed upon the establishment of a federal system of government for them. After a March 9th meeting between Stalin and his military advisors, a secret memorandum was sent to Molotov on March 12th outlining a plan to force the policy of the Western Allies into line with the wishes of the Soviet government by regulating access to Berlin. The Allied Control Council met for the last time on March 20, 1948, when Vasily Sokolovsky demanded to know the outcome of the London Conference and, upon being told by negotiators that they had not yet heard the final results from their governments, he said, and I quote, I see no sense in continuing this meeting, and I declare it adjourned very good. The entire Soviet delegation rose and walked out. Truman later noted, for most all of Germany, this act merely formalized what had been an obvious fact for some time. Namely, the four-power control machinery had become unworkable. For the city of Berlin, however, this was an indication of a major crisis. Berlin blockade, April crisis, and the little airlift. On March 25th, 1948, the Soviets issued orders restricting Western military and passenger traffic between the American, British, and French occupation zones and the city of Berlin. These new measures began on April 1st, along with an announcement that no cargo could leave Berlin by rail without the permission of the Soviet ambassador commander. Each train and truck was to be searched by Soviet authorities. On the 2nd of April... General Clay ordered a halt to all military trains and required that supplies to the military garrison in Berlin be transported by air, which was then dubbed the Little Lift. The Soviets eased their restrictions on Allied military trains on April 10th, but continued periodically to interrupt rail and road traffic during the next 75 days, while the United States continued supplying its military forces by using cargo aircraft. Some 20 flights a day continued through June, building up stockpiles of food against future Soviet actions so that by the time the blockade began at the end of June, there was at least 18 days supply of major food types and in some cases much more, which had been stockpiled to provide time to build up the ensuing airlift. At the same time, Soviet military aircraft had begun to violate West Berlin airspace and was harassing flights in and out of West Berlin. On the 5th of April, a Soviet Air Force Yakolev Yak-3 fighter collided with a British European Airways Vickers Viking 1B airliner, killing all aboard both aircraft. This disaster exacerbated tensions between the Soviets and other allied powers. Internal Soviet reports in April stated that, quote, our control and restrictive measures have dealt a strong blow to the prestige of the American and British in Germany, unquote, and that the Americans had admitted that the idea of an airlift would be too expensive. On April 9th, Soviet officials demanded that American military personnel maintaining communications equipment in the eastern zone must withdraw, thus preventing the use of navigation beacons to mark air routes. On April 20th, the Soviets demanded that all barges obtain clearance before entering the Soviet zone. Berlin blockade, currency crisis. Creation of an economically stable Western Germany required reform of the unstable Reichmark German currency, which was introduced after the 1920s German inflation. The Soviets continued the debasing of the Reichmark, which had undergone severe inflation during the war by excessive printing, resulting in many Germans using cigarettes as the de facto currency or for bartering. The Soviets opposed Western plans for a reform, they interpreted the new currency as an unjustified unilateral decision and responded by cutting all land links between West Berlin and West Germany. The Soviets believed that the only currency that should be allowed to circulate was the currency that they issued themselves. Anticipating the introduction of the new currency by the other countries in the non-Soviet zones, the Soviet Union in May 1948 directed its military to introduce its own new currency and to permit only the Soviet currency to be used in their sector of Berlin. If the other countries brought in different currency there on June 18th, the United States, Britain and France announced that on June 21st, the Deutsche Mark would be introduced, but the Soviets refused to permit its use as legal tender in Berlin. The allies had already transported 250 million Deutsche Marks into the city, and it quickly became the standard currency in all four sections. Against the wishes of the Soviets, the new currency, along with the Marshall Plan that backed it, appeared to have the potential to revitalize Germany. Stalin looked to force the Western nations to abandon Berlin. Berlin blockade start of the Berlin airlift. The day after June, the June 18, 1948 announcement of the new Deutschmark, Soviet guards halted all passenger trains and traffic on the Autobahn to Berlin, delayed Western and German freight shipments and required that all water transport secure special Soviet permission. On June 21st, the day the Deutschmark was introduced, the Soviet military halted a United States military supply train to Berlin and sent it back to Western Germany. The next day, June twenty second the Soviets announced that they would introduce a new currency in their zone. That same day... A Soviet representative told the other three occupying powers that we are warning you and the population of Berlin that we shall we shall apply economic and administrative sanctions that will lead to the circulation in Berlin exclusively of the currency of the Soviet occupation zone. The Soviets launched a massive propaganda campaign condemning uh, Britain, the United States and France by radio, newspaper and loudspeaker. The Soviets conducted well-advertised military maneuvers just outside the city. Rumors of a potential occupation by Soviet troops spread quickly. German communists demonstrated, rioted, and attacked pro-West German leaders attending meetings for the municipal government in the Soviet sector. On June 24th, the Soviets severed land and water connections between the non-Soviet zones in Berlin. That same day, they halted all rail and barge traffic in and out of Berlin. The West answered by introducing a counter-blockade, stopping all rail traffic into East Germany from the British and U.S. zones. Over the following months, this counter-blockade would have a damaging impact on East Germany as the drying up of coal and steel shipments seriously hindered industrial development in the Soviet zone. On June 25th, the Soviets stopped supplying food to the civilian population in the non-Soviet sectors of Berlin. Motor traffic from Berlin to the western zones was permitted, but this required a 23-kilometer detour to a ferry crossing because of alleged repairs to a bridge. They also cut off the electricity relied on by Berlin, using their control over the generating plants in the Soviet zone. Surface traffic from the non Soviet zones to Berlin was blockaded, leaving open only the air corridors. The Soviets rejected arguments that the occupation rights in the non Soviet sectors of Berlin and the use of the supply routes during the previous three years had given Britain, France, and the United States a legal claim to use the highways, tunnels, railroads, and canals. Relying on Soviet goodwill after the war, Britain, France, and the U.S. had never negotiated an agreement with the Soviets to guarantee these land based rights of access to Berlin through the Soviet zone at the same time West Berlin had 36 days worth of food 45 days worth of coal militarily the Americans and British were greatly outnumbered because of their post because of the post-war scaling back of their armies the United States like other Western countries had disbanded most of its troops and was largely inferior in the European theater the entire U.S. Army had been reduced to 552,000 men by February 1948 Military forces in the western sectors of Berlin numbered uh, only 9,000 Americans, 7,600 British, and 6,100 French. Of the 98,000 American troops in West Germany in March 1948, only 31,000 were combat troops, and only one reserve division was immediately available in the United States. Soviet military forces in the Soviet sector that surrounded Berlin totaled, by comparison, 1.5 million. The two United States regiments in Berlin could have provided little resistance against a Soviet attack. Because of the imbalance, U.S. war plans were based on using hundreds of atomic bombs, but only about 50 Fat Man specification bombs, the only version available to the U.S. military, existed in 1948. In March only 35 silver plate atomic capable Boeing B-29 Superfortress bombers, just over half of the 65 silver plate specification B-29 aircraft built through the end of 1947, and a few trained flight, and assembly crews were available. Three B-29 groups arrived in Europe in July and August 1948. Despite the intention to signal the threat of the West's ability to retaliate with nuclear weapons if necessary, the Soviets possibly knew that none of the bombers were atomic capable. The first silver plate bombers only arrived to Europe near the end of the crisis in April 1949. General Clay, in charge of the U.S. occupation zone in Germany, summed up the reasons for not re- retreating in a cable to Washington, D.C. on June 13, 19. 48. Quote, There is no practica- practicability in maintaining our position in Britain, and it must not be evaluated on that basis. We are convinced that our remaining in Berlin is essential to our prestige in Germany and in Europe. Whether for good or bad, it has become a symbol of the American intent. End quote. Believing that Britain, France, and the United States had little option than to acquiesce, the Soviet military administration in Germany celebrated the beginning of the blockade. General Clay felt that the Soviets were bluffing about Berlin since they would not want to be viewed as starting a third world war. He believed that Stalin did not want a war and that Soviet actions were aimed at at exerting military and political pressure on the West to obtain concessions, relying on the West's prudence and unwillingness to provoke a war. Uh, Commander of United States Air Force in Europe, General LeMay, reportedly favored an aggressive response to the blockade, in which his B-29s, with a fighter escort, would approach Soviet air bases while ground troops attempted to reach Berlin. Washington vetoed the plan. Berlin, blockade, decision for an airlift. Although the ground routes had never been negotiated, the same was not true of the air. On November 30th, 1945, it had been agreed in writing that there would be three 20-mile-wide air corridors providing free access to Berlin. Additionally, unlike a force of tanks and trucks, the Soviets could not claim that cargo aircraft were a military threat. In the face of unarmed aircraft refusing to turn around, the only way to enforce the blockade would have been to shoot them down an airlift would put the Soviet Union in the position of either shooting down unarmed humanitarian aircraft, thus breaking their own agreements or backing down. The airlift option critically depended on scale and effectiveness. If the supplies could not be flown in fast enough, Soviet help would eventually be needed to prevent starvation. Clay was told to take advice from General LeMay to see if an airlift was possible. Initially taken aback by the inquiry, which was Can you haul coal? LeMay replied, we can haul anything. When US forces consulted Britain's Royal Air Force about a possible joint airlift, they learned that the RAF was already running an airlift in support of British troops in Berlin. General Clay's counterpart, General Sir Brian Robertson, was ready with some concrete numbers. During the little lift in April 1948, British Air Commodore Reginald uh, Waite had calculated the resources required to support the entire city. The American military government, based on a minimum daily ration of 1,990 kilocalories, set a total daily supplies needed at 646 tons of flour and wheat, 125 tons of cereal, 64 tons of fat, 109 tons of meat and fish, one hundred. 80 tons of dehydrated potatoes, 180 tons of sugar, 11 tons of coffee, 19 tons of powdered milk, 5 tons of whole milk for, uh, for children, 3 tons of fresh young ye- uh, fresh yeast, fresh yeast for baking, 144 tons of dehydrated vegetables, 38 tons of salt and 10 tons of cheese. In all, 1534 tons were required each day to sustain the over 2 million people. Of Berlin. Additionally, for heat and power, 3,475 tons of coal, diesel, and petrol were required daily. Carrying all of this in would not be easy. The post-war demobilization left the U.S. forces in Europe with only two groups of C-47 SkyTrain transports, nominally 96 aircraft, each of which could carry 3.5 tons of cargo. LeMay believed that with an all-out effort of 100 daily round trips, these would be able to haul about 300 tons of supplies a day. The RAF was somewhat better prepared since it had already moved some aircraft into the German area, and they expected to be able to supply about 400 tons a day. This was not nearly enough to move the 5,000 tons a day that would be needed, but these numbers could be increased as new aircraft arrived from the U.K., the U.S., and France. The RAF would be relied upon to increase its numbers quickly. It could fly additional aircraft in from Berlin, in from Britain, in a single hop, bringing the RAF fleet to about 150 Dakotas and 40 of the larger Avro Yorks with a 10-ton payload. With this fleet... The British contribution was expected to rise to 750 tons a day in the short term, albeit at the cost of suspending all air traffic except for the airlift to Berlin and Warsaw. For a longer-term operation, the U.S. would have, ha- would have to add additional aircraft as soon as possible, and those would have to be as large as possible while still able to fly into Berlin airports. Only one aircraft type was suitable, the 4 engined C-54 Skymaster and its U.S. Navy equivalent, the R5D of which the military had approximately 565 with 268 air force and navy skymasters 168 in troop carrier groups and 80 navy R5Ds and miscellaneous commands planners calculated that including C54s already ordered to Germany and drawing on those flying with civilian carriers 447 skymasters could be available for an extreme emergency Given the feasibility assessment made by the British, an airlift appeared to be the best course of action. One remaining concern was the population of Berlin. Clay called in Ernst Reuter, the mayor-elect of Britain. Accompanied by his side, Willie Brandt, Clay told Reuter... Look, I am really, I'm ready to try an airlift. I can't guarantee it'll work. I'm sure that even at its best, people are going to be cold and people are going to be hungry. And if the people of Berlin won't stand that, I, it will fail. And I don't want to go into this unless I have your assurance that the people will be heavily in approval. Reuter, although skeptical, assured Clay that Berlin would make all the necessary sacrifices and that Berliners would support his actions. General Wiedemeyer, the U.S. Army Chief of Plans and Operations, was in Europe on an inspection tour when the crisis broke out. He had been the commander of U.S.-China-Burma-India Theater in 1944 and 1945, and he had a detailed knowledge of the previously largest airlift, the World War II American airlift from India over the Hump, of the Himalayas to China. His endorsement of the airlift option gave it a major boost. The British and Americans agreed to join uh, to start a joint organization without delay. The U.S. action was dubbed Operation Vittles, while the British action was called Operation Planefair. The Australian contribution to the airlift begun in September 1948. It was designated Operation Pelican. The British... Asked Canada to contribute planes and crews, it refused, primarily on the grounds that the operation risked war and Canada had not been consulted. Berlin blockade airlift begins. On June 24, 1948, LeMay appointed Brigadier General Joseph Smith, headquarters commandant for USAFE at Camp Lindsay as the provisional task force commander of the airlift. Smith had been chief of staff in LeMay's B-29 command in India during World War II, but had no airlift experience. On June 25th, Clay gave the order to launch Operation Vittles, and the next day, 32 C-47s lifted off to Berlin, hauling 80 tons of cargo, including milk, flour, and medicine. The first British aircraft flew on June 28th, and at that time, the uh, the airlift was expected to last... Three weeks. By July 1st, the system was getting seriously underway. C 54s were starting to arrive in quantity, and Rhine Main Air Base became exclusively a C 54 hub, while Wiesbaden re- remained a mix of C 54s and C 47s. Aircrafts flew northeast through the American Air Corridor into, into Tempelhof, Tempelhof Airport then returned due west flying out on through the british air corridor after reaching the british zone they then turned south and returned to their bases the british ran a similar system flying southeast from several airports in the hamburg area through their second corridor into raf Gatow in the british sector and then also returning out on the center corridor turning for home or landing at hanover However, unlike the Americans, the British also ran some round trips using their southeast corridor. To save time, many flights didn't land in Berlin, instead airdropping their material, such as coal, into the airfields. On july sixth, the Yorks and Dakotas were joined by short Sunderland flying boats flying from Finkenweirder <laughs> on the Elbe near Frank uh, near Hamburg. On the Havel River next to Gatow, their corrosion-resistant hulls suited them to the particular task of delivering baking powder and other salt into the city. The Royal Australian Air Force also contributed to the British effort. Accommodating the large number of flights to Berlin of dissimilar aircraft with widely varying flight characteristics required close coordination. Smith and his staff developed a complex timetable for flights called the Block System, Three eight hour blocks of C 54 of a C 54 section to Berlin, followed by an eight hour block of C 47s. Aircraft were scheduled to take off every four minutes, flying 1,000 feet higher than the flight in front of them. This pattern began at 5,000 feet and was repeated five times. This section of stacked inbound serials was later dubbed the latter. During the first week, The airlift managed only 90 tons a day, but by the second week, it reached 1,000 tons. This likely would have sufficed had the effort lasted only a few weeks, as was originally believed. The communist press in East Berlin ridiculed the project. It derisively referred to, quote, the futile attempts of the Americans to save face and to maintain their untenable position in Berlin. Despite the excitement engendered by glamorous publicity extolling the work, of the crews and the daily increase of tonnage levels. The airlift was not close to being operated to its full capacity because USAFE was a tactical organization without any airlift experience. Maintenance was barely adequate, crews were not being efficiently used, transport stood idle and disused, necessary record keeping was scant, and ad hoc flight crews of publicity seeking desk personnel were disrupting a business-like atmosphere. This was recognized by the United States National Security Council at a meeting with Clay on July 22, 1948, when it became clear that a long-term airlift was necessary. Wiedemeyer immediately recommended that the Deputy Commander for Operations of the Military Air Transport Service, Major General William H. Turner, Tunner, command the operation. When Wedemeyer had been Commander well, when Wedemeyer had been commander of the U.S. forces in China during World War II, Tonner, as commander of the India-China Division of the Air Transport Command, had reorganized the hump airlift between India and China, doubling the tonnage and hours flown. U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff Hoyt S. Vandenberg endorsed the recommendation. Berlin blockade Black Friday on July 28th 1948, Tunner arrived at Weisbaden to take over the operation. He revamped the entire airlift operation, reaching an agreement with LeMay to to form the Combined Airlift Task Force to control both the USAFE and the RAF lift operations from a central location, which went into effect in mid-October 1948. The Military Air Transport Service, the MATS, immediately deployed eight squadrons of C-54s to Weisbaden and Rhein-Main Air Base to reinforce the 54 already in operation, and two-thirds of all C-54 aircrew worldwide began transferring to Germany to allot three crews per aircraft. Two weeks after his arrival, on August 13th, Tunner decided to fly to Berlin to grant an award to Lt. Paul Likens, an aircraft pilot who had made the most flights into Berlin up to that time, a symbol of the effort to date. Cloud cover over Berlin on that day had dropped to the height of the buildings, and heavy rain showers made radar visibility poor. On the Berlin runway, a C 54 had crashed and burned, and a second one landing behind it had burst its tires while trying to avoid it. A third transpor- transport ground looped after mistakenly landing on a runway under construction. In accordance, With the standard procedures then in effect, all incoming transports, including tunners, arriving every three minutes, were stacked above Berlin by air traffic control from 3,000 feet to 12,000 feet in bad weather, creating an extreme risk of mid-air collision. Newly unloaded planes on the ground were denied permission to take off to avoid the possibility of collision and created a backup on the ground. While no one was killed, Tunner was embarrassed that the control tower at Tempelhof had lost control of the situation while the commander of the airlift was circling overhead. Tunner radioed for all stacked aircraft except his to be sent home immediately. This became known as Black Friday, and Tunner personally noted it was from that date that the success of the airlift stemmed. As a result of Black Friday... Tunner instituted a number of new rules. Instrument flight rules would be in effect at all times, regardless of actual visibility, and each sortie would have only one chance to land in Berlin. Returning to its home airbase if it missed its approach, where it was slotted back into the flow. Stacking was completely eliminated. With straight-in approaches, the planners found that it had, that in the time it had taken to unstack and land nine aircraft, 30 aircraft could be landed, bringing in 300 tons. Accident rates and delays dropped immediately. Tunner decided, as he had done during the hump operation, to replace the C-47s in the airlift with C-54s, or larger aircraft, when it realized that it took just as long to unload a a 3.5-ton C-47 as a 10-ton C-54. One of the reasons for this was the sloping cargo floor of the tail-dragger C-47s, which made truckloading difficult. The tricycle-geared C-54's cargo deck was level, so that a truck could back up to it and offload cargo quickly. The change went into full effect after September 28, 1948. Having noticed on his first inspection trip to Berlin... Uh, on July 31st that there were long delays as flight crews returned to their aircraft after getting refreshments from the terminal. Tunner banned aircrew from leaving their aircraft for any reason while in Berlin. Instead, he equipped Jeeps as mobile snack bars, handing out refreshments to the crews at their aircraft while it was being unloaded. Operations officers handed pilots their clearance slips and other information while they ate. With unloading beginning as soon as the engines were sh- shut down on the ramp, turnaround before takeoff back to Rhine, Main or Weisbaden, was reduced to 30 minutes. To maximize the utilization of a limited number of aircraft, Tunner altered the latter to 3 minutes and 500 feet of separation, stacked from 4,000 feet. Maintenance, particularly adherence to the 25-hour, 20-hour, and 1,000-hour inspections became the highest priority and further maximized utilization. Tunner also shortened block times to six hours to to squeeze in another shift, making 1,440 landings in Berlin a daily goal, the number of minutes in a day. His purpose, illustrating the basic philosophy of the airlift business, was to create a conveyor belt approach to scheduling that could be sped up or slowed down, as situations might dictate. The most effective measure taken by Tunner and the most initially resisted until it demonstrated its efficiency was creation of a single control point in the CALTF for controlling all air movements into Berlin rather than each force doing its own. The Berliners themselves solved the problem of lack of manpower. Crews unloading and making airfield repairs at the Berlin airports were made up almost entirely of local civilians who were given additional rations in return. As the crews increased in experience, the times for unloading continued to fall, with a record set for the unloading of an entire 10-ton shipment of coal from a C-54 in 10 minutes, later beaten when a 12-man crew unloaded the same quantity in 5 minutes and 45 seconds. By the end of August 1948, after two months, the airlift was succeeding. Daily operations flew more than 1,500 flights a day and delivered more than 4,500 tons of cargo, enough to keep West Berlin supplied. From January 1949 onwards, 225 C-54s were devoted to the lift. Supplies improved to 5,000 tons a day. Berlin Blockade Operation Little Vittles Gail Halverson one of the many airlift pilots, decided to use his off time to fly into Berlin and make movies with his handheld camera. He arrived at Tempelhof on July 17, 1948, on one of the C-54s, and walked over to a crowd of children who had gathered at the end of the runway to watch the aircraft. He introduced himself, and they started to ask him questions about the aircraft and their flights. As a goodwill, goodwill gesture, he handed out his only two sticks of wrigley's double mint gum the children quickly divided up the pieces as best they could even passing around the wrapper for others to smell he was so impressed by their gratitude and that they didn't fight over them that he promised the next time he returned he would drop off more before he left them a child asked him how they would know it was him flying over he replied i'll wiggle my wings the next day on his approach to berlin he rocked the aircraft and dropped some chocolate bars attached to, attached to a handkerchief parachute to the children waiting below every day after that the number of children increased as he made several more drops soon there was a stack of mail in base ops addressed to uncle wiggly wings the chocolate uncle and the chocolate flyer his commanding officer was upset when the story appeared in the news but when tunner heard about it he approved of the gesture and immediately expanded it into operation little vittles other pilots participated and when the news reached the u.s children all over the country sent in their own candy to help out soon major candy manufacturers joined in in the end Over three tons of candy was dropped on Berlin, and the operation became a major propaganda success. German children christened the candy-dropping aircraft Raisin Bombers. Berlin Blockade Soviet Responses The Soviets had an advantage in conventional military forces, but were preoccupied with rebuilding their war-torn economy and society. The U.S. had a stronger navy and air force and had nuclear weapons. Neither side wanted a war. The Soviets did not disrupt the airlift. As the tempo of the airlift grew, it became apparent that Western powers might be able to pull off the impossible. That is, indefinitely supplying an entire city by air alone. In response, starting on August 1st, 1948, the Soviets offered free food to anyone who crossed into East Berlin and registered their ration cards there, but West Berliners overwhelmingly rejected Soviet offers of food. Throughout the airlift, Soviet and German communists subjected the hard-pressed West Berliners to sustained psychological warfare. In radio broadcasts, they relentlessly proclaimed that all Berlin came under Soviet authority and predicted the imminent abandonment of the city by the Western occupying powers. The Soviets also harassed members of the democratically elected citywide administration, which had to conduct its business in the city hall located in the Soviet sector. During these early months of the airlift, the Soviets used various methods to harass Allied aircraft. These include buzzing by Soviet planes, obstructive parachute jumps within the corridors, and shining searchlights, search, searchlights to dazzle pilots at night. Although the USAF reported... 733 separate harassing events including flak air-to-air fire rocketing bombing and explosions this is now considered to be exaggerated none of these measures were effective former raf dakota pilot dick Arscott described one buzzing incident as quote yaks soviet planes used to come and buzz you and go over the top of you at about 20 feet which can be very off-putting one day i was buzzed about three times the following day it started again and he came across twice and i got a bit fed up with it so when it when he came for the third time i turned the aircraft into him and it was a case of chicken luckily he was the one who chickened out in the autumn of 1948 it became impossible for the non-communist majority in greater berlin's citywide parliament to attend sessions at city hall within the soviet sector the parliament had been elected under the Provisional Constitution of Berlin two years earlier. As SED-controlled policemen looked on passively, communist-led mobs repeatedly invaded the Provisional City Hall, interrupted the parliament's sessions, and physically menaced its non-communist members. The, Kremlin's organized, the Kremlin organized an attempt Push for control of all Berlin through a, six, a September 6 takeover of City Hall by SED members. Three days later, RIAS Radio urged Berliners to protest against the actions of the communists. On September 9, 1948, a crowd of 500,000 people gathered at the Brandenburg Gate next to the ruined Reichstag in the British sector. The airlift was working so far, but many West Berliners feel that the Allies would eventually discontinue it. Then SPD city councillor Ernst Reuter took the microphone and pleaded for his city, young people of the world, young people of America, of England, of France, look on this city and recognize that this city, this people, must not be abandoned, cannot be abandoned. The crowd surged towards the Soviet-occupied sector, and someone climbed up and ripped down the Soviet flag from flying atop the Brandenburg Gate. Soviet military police quickly responded, resulting in the killing of one in the unruly crowd. The tense situation could have escalated further and ended up in more bloodshed, but a British deputy provost then intervened and pointedly pushed the Soviet MPs back with his swagger stick. Never before this incident had so many Berliners gathered in unity. The residents worldwide was enormous notably in the United States where a strong feeling of solidarity with berliners reinforced a general widespread determination not to abandon them berlin's parliament decided to meet instead in the canteen of the Technical College of Berlin in the British sector, boycotted by the members of SED, which had gained 19.8% of the electoral votes in 1946. On November 30th, 1948, the SED gathered its elected parliament members and 1,100 further activists and held an unconstitutional so-called extraordinary city assembly in east berlin's metropole theater which declared the elected city government and its democratically elected city councilors to be deposed and replaced with a new one led by frederick erbst jr and consisting only of communists this arbitrary act had no legal effect in west berlin but the soviet occupants prevented the elected city government for all of berlin from further acting in the eastern sector Berlin blockade, winter 1948-1949, preparing for winter. Although the early estimates were that about 4,000 to 5,000 tons per day would be needed to supply the city. This was made in the context of summer weather, when the airlift was only expected to last a few weeks. As the operation dragged on into autumn, the situation changed considerably. The food requirements would remain the same, around 1,500 tons, but the need for additional coal to heat the city dramatically increased the total amount of cargo to be transported by an additional 6,000 tons a day. To maintain the airlift under these conditions, the current system would have to be greatly expanded. Aircraft were available, and the British started adding their larger Handley-Page-Hastings in November, but maintaining the fleet proved to be a serious problem. Tunner looked to the Germans once again, hiring plentiful ex Luftwaffe ground crews. Another problem was the lack of runways in Berlin to land on. Two at Tempelhof and one at Gatow, neither of which was designed to support the loads of the C-54s were putting on them. All the existing runways required hundreds of laborers who ran onto them between landings and dumped sand into the runway's Marston mat, the pierced steel planking, to soften the surface and help the planking survive. Since this system could not endure through the winter, Between July and September 1948, a 6,000-foot-long asphalt runway was constructed at Tempelhof. Far from ideal, With the approach being over Berlin's apartment blocks, the runway nevertheless was a major upgrade to the airport's capabilities. With it in place, the auxiliary runway was upgraded from Marston-Matting to Asphalt between September and October 1948. A similar upgrade program was carried out by the British at Gatow during the same period, also adding a second runway using concrete. The French Air Force, meanwhile, had become involved in the first Indochina War, so it can only bring up some old junkers, JU-52s, to support its own troops. And they were too small to be and too slow to be of much help. However, France agreed to build a complete new and larger airport in its sector on the shores of Lake Tegel. French military engineers managing German construction crews were able to complete the construction in under 90 days. Because of a shortage of heavy equipment, the first runway was built mostly by hand by thousands of laborers who worked day and night. For the second runway at Tegel, heavy equipment was needed to level the ground, equipment that was too large and heavy to fly in on any existing cargo aircraft. The solution was to dismantle large machines and then reassemble them. Using the five largest American C-82 packet transports, it was possible to fly the machinery into West Berlin. This not only helped build the airfield, but also demonstrated that the Soviet blockade could not keep anything out of Berlin. The Tegel airfield was subsequently developed into berlin Tegel airport to improve air traffic control which would be a, which, which would be critical as the number of flights grew the newly developed ground control approach radar system was flown to europe for installation at Tempelhof, with a second set installed at fastberg in the british zone in west germany with the installation of the ground controlled approach radar system all weather airlift operations were assured none of these efforts could fix the weather which became the biggest problem November and December 1948 proved to be the worst months of the airlift operation. One of the longest-lasting fogs ever experienced in Berlin blanketed the entire European continent for weeks. All too often, aircraft would make the entire flight and then be unable to land in Berlin. On November 20, 1948, 42 aircraft departed for Berlin, but only one landed there. At one point, the city had only a week's supply of coal left. However, the weather eventually improved and more than 171,000 tons were delivered in January 1949, 152,000 tons in February, and in March, 196,000 tons. Berlin Blockade, End of the Blockade On April 15, 1949, the Soviet news agency TASS reported a willingness by the Soviets to lift the blockade. The next day, the U.S. State Department stated that the way appears clear for the blockade to end. Soon afterwards, the four powers began serious negotiations and a settlement was reached on Western terms. On May 4th, 1949, the Allies announced an agreement to end the blockade in eight days. The Soviet blockade of Berlin was lifted at one minute after midnight on May 12, 1949. A British convoy immediately drove through to Berlin, and the first train from West Germany reached Berlin at 5.32 a.m. Later that day, an enormous crowd celebrated the end of the blockade. General Clay, whose retirement had been announced by U.S. President Truman on May 3rd, 1949, was saluted by 11,000 U.S. soldiers and dozens of aircraft. Once home, Clay received a ticker tape parade in New York City, was invited to address the U.S. Congress, and was honored with a medal from President Truman. Nevertheless, supply flights to Berlin continued for some time to build up a comfortable surplus, though night flying and weekend flying nights could be be eliminated once the surplus was large enough. By July 24, 1949, three months of supplies had been amassed. Ensuring that there were ample time to restart the airlift if needed. On August 18, 1949, First Lieutenant Roy Mather, DFC, AFC, and his crew of Flight Lieutenant Roy Lewis Stewart Hathaway, AFC, Flight Lieutenant Richardson and Royston, William Marshall, AFM, of the 206th Squadron, flew back to one store for the 404th time during the blockade, the record number of flights for any pilot of any nationality, either civilian. Or military, the Berlin airlift officially ended on September 30th, 1949, after 15 months. In total, the U.S. Air Force delivered 1,783,000 tons, and the RAF 541,000 tons, for a total of 2.3 million tons, nearly two-thirds of which was coal, on 278,000 flights to Berlin. The Royal Australian Air Force delivered. 8,000 tons of freight and 7,000 passengers during 2100 sorties the c-47s and c-54s together flew over 92 million miles in the process almost the distance from earth to the sun at the height of the airlift one plane reached west berlin every 30 seconds pilots came from the united states united kingdom australia canada new zealand and south africa A total of 101 fatalities were recorded as a result of the operation, including 40 Britons and 31 Americans, mostly due to non-flying accidents. One Royal Australian Air Force member was killed in an aircraft crash at Lubeck while while attached to No. 27 Squadron Royal Air Force. 17 American and 8 British aircraft crashed during the operation. The cost of the airlift was shared between the U.S., U.K., and Germany. Estimated costs range from approximately $224 million United States to over $500 million, equivalent to approximately 2.4 dollars 4 to $5.7 billion today. Operational control of the three Allied air corridors was assigned to Berlin Air Route Traffic Con- uh, Control Center. Air traffic control, located at Tempelhof. Diplomatic approval was granted by a four-power organization called the Berlin Air Safety Center and was located in the American sector. After World War II, Germans tended to prefer living in West Germany over East Germany, and Berlin became became a major escape route for people wanting to leave the Soviet sphere of interest for the West. This led to major power conflict over Berlin that stretched at least from 1946 to the construction of the Berlin Wall in 1961. After US President Truman was replaced by Eisenhower in 1953 and Khrushchev became Soviet head of state in 1958, Khrushchev tried to push Eisenhower on Berlin in 1958 and 1959. The Soviets backed down when Eisenhower's resolve seemed to match that of Truman. When Eisenhower was replaced by Kennedy in 1961, Khrushchev tried again with essentially the same result. In the late 1950s. The runways at West Berlin's city center, Tempelhof Airport, had become too short to accommodate new generation jet aircraft, and Tegel was developed into West Berlin's principal airport. During the 1970s and 80s, Schoenfeld had its own crossing points through the Berlin Wall and communist fortifications for Western citizens. The Soviets' contravention by the blockade of the agreement reached by the London Six Power Conference and the Czechoslovak coup d'etat of 1948 convinced Western leaders that they had to take swift and decisive measures to strengthen the portions of Germany not occupied by the Soviets. The U.S., British, and French authorities also agreed to replace their military administrations in the occupation zones with high commissioners operating within the terms of a three-power occupation statute. The blockade also helped to unify german politicians in these zones in support of the creation of a west german state some of them hitherto had been fearful of soviet opposition the blockade also increased the perception among many europeans that the soviets posed a danger helping to prompt the the entity the entry into nato of portugal iceland italy denmark and norway animosities between germans and the western allies Britain, uh, Britain, France, and United States were greatly reduced by the airlift with the former enemies recognizing common interests, namely freedom and capitalism, shared values and mutual respect. The Soviets refused to return to the Allied Control Council in Berlin, rendering the four power occupation authorities set up at the Potsdam Conference useless. It has been argued that the events of the Berlin blockade are proof that the Allies conducted their their affairs within a rational framework since they were keen to avoid war. In 2007, Tegel was joined by the redeveloped Berlin International Airport in Brandenburg. As a result of the development of these two airports, Tempelhof was closed in October 2008, while Gatow became the home of the Brunswick Museum of Military History, Berlin-Gatow Airfield, and Housing development. Berlin blockade, aircraft used in the Berlin airlift. United States. The Boeing C-97 Stratofreighter, the Consolidated B-24 Liberator, the Consolidated PBY Catalina, the Douglas C-54 Skymaster, the Douglas DC-4, the Douglas C-74 Globemaster, the Douglas C-47 Skytrain, and Douglas DC-3, the Fairchild C-82 Packet, the Lockheed C-121A Constellation. In the early days, Americans used their C-47 Skytrain, or its civilian counterpart, the Douglas DC-3. These machines could carry a payload of up to 3.5 tons, but were replaced by C-54 Skymasters and Douglas DC-4s, which could carry up to 10 tons and were faster. These aircraft made up a total of 330 aircraft, which made them the most used types. Other American aircraft, such as the 5C-82 Packets and the 1YC-97A Stratofighter, with a payload of 20 tons, a gigantic load for that time were only sparsely used. For the British, we had the Avro Lancaster, the Avro Lincoln, the Avro York, the Avro Tudor, the Avro Lancastrian, the Bristol Type 170 freighter, the Douglas DC3 Dakota, the Handley Page Hastings, the Handley Page Halifax, the Short Sunderland, and the Vickers VC1 Viking the british used a considerable variety of aircraft types many aircraft were either former bombers or civil versions of bombers in absence of enough transports the british chartered many civilian aircraft british european airways coordinated all british civil Aircraft operations. Apart from BEA itself, the participating airlines included the British Overseas Airway Corporation and the most British independent airliners of that era: Eagle Aviation, Silver City Airways, British South American Airways, the Lancashire Aircraft Corporation, Airwork Airfreight, Aquila Airways, Flight Refuelling Limited, uh, Skyways Scottish Airlines, and Cerosa Aviation. Altogether. BEA was responsible to the RAF for the direction and operation of 25 british airlines taking part in operation plane the british also used flying boats particularly for transporting corrosive salt these included civilian aircraft operated by Aquila aquila airways these took off and landed on water and were designed to be corrosion resistant in winter when ice covered the berlin rivers and made the use of flying boats difficult the british used other aircraft in their place altogether A total of 692 aircraft were engaged in the Berlin airlift, more than 100 of which belonged to civilian operators. Other aircraft included Junkers ju 52 which were operated briefly by France. That's it for today's episode of Wikiredia. Look, before you go, be sure to hit subscribe, follow us on Twitter at It's Wikiredia, and tell your friends. What do you want to listen to? Send topic ideas to our email, which is wikiredia at pm.me. Our producer and narrator, that's me, is Eric Goris. Our engineer is OJ Tingles, and our content editor is Johnny Rocketship. We ask you to support this show by following and sharing, but more importantly, just listening. We also ask that you do your part to support Wikipedia itself by considering a donation to the Wikipedia Foundation. That can be done at wikipedia.org. All or at least the vast majority of the words spoken on this show are from the text of Wikipedia entries and we're using those words under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license, which grants us and in fact anyone the right to adapt the original work remix it, and then to distribute and transmit the work even for commercial purposes. This license requires that we name the author of the original work, which in this case is Wikipedia. Wikiredia itself is also distributed under the same Creative Commons attribution, share alike, 3.0 license. Wikiredia is a production of Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation.